0: Romans 8, 18-25, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. As we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's Word, and I want to preach to you on this Word this morning under the title Patient Endurance. Let's pray together and ask God for His help. Father, we thank You for this text. We ask that You would speak to us now through it. I pray that You would help me as I communicate, to communicate Your truths, not simply my ideas, so that You would open our hearts, that Your people would receive Your Word this morning. That we would be strengthened by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Patient endurance. In Exodus chapter 33, there is this fascinating exchange between Moses and God. Moses is called to lead God's people through the wilderness and Moses knows that they being this small, not even yet a nation of nomads, are going to receive persecution, war, there's going to be suffering... How will the nations around us know that you, Yahweh, the God of creation, are with us? And so entering into this suffering, Moses asks God if he can see his glory. My interpretation of this event is that Moses is saying, God, before we go into this season of suffering, Show me your glory, so that while we suffer, I know that it's all worth it. Now, if you know the passage, God says, well, if you uh, see me face to face, you'll die. Nobody can fully see my glory, but, but I will show you a glimpse. And so God puts him in a cleft of a rock, and God just shows Moses a glimpse of his glory. And it is so transformative that the text tells us that Moses comes down and his face shines, not in uh, the sense of reflecting light, but the text tells us that his face is radiating light, as if beams of light are coming from Moses' face just after catching a small glimpse of the glory of God, so bright so that they have to put a veil over his face. Listen, the glory of God is beautiful beyond description. It is so glorious that we can't even, in this point in our flesh, see it or we will die. It's so glorious that there aren't even words to describe it. And I think God has this little scenario with Moses in Exodus 33 to tell us, to show us that Moses was right in saying, I need hope in your glory in order to face all of the sufferings that I'm going to face. Because by the time we get to the New Testament, and by the time we get to Romans chapter 8, and by the time Paul starts talking about sufferings, he doesn't just talk about suffering. He doesn't just talk about how hard this world is and leave it there, which is how so many of us talk about suffering. So many of us, were so used to being like, oh, life is so hard, it's so difficult, it's suffering, and we leave it there. That's not what Paul does. As soon as Paul talks about suffering, what does he talk about? Our hope of glory. It's the hope of glory that allows us to patiently endure the suffering. But now listen, God is straight up with us. He tells us, look at the text, he says in verse 18, he says, For I consider, through Paul, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. Let's just stop right there. The sufferings of this present time. Meaning we're told that there are currently and going to be and has been sufferings in this present time. The Bible is the most realistic book you can imagine. God doesn't ignore the reality of suffering in this present time. I actually think even in this text we see two different pieces, two different sides of this suffering. Uh, two ways in which we suffer. First is futility, and the second is violence. First, futility. Look at verse 20. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Everybody say futility. That's a word that means emptiness, or fruitlessness, or it means warped, It means the earth is crooked. It means that creation doesn't go the way creation is meant to go. The creation was subjected to futility. Look at what it says. Not willingly, meaning it wasn't creation's fault. Creation didn't sin. Not willingly, but because of him, who subjected it? Who is the him? Well, it could be Adam, right? Because Adam is the one that took the fruit and ate the fruit. Through Adam, sin entered into the world. It could be the devil. Because the devil is the one that is uh, uh, doing all of this wreaking wreaking havoc in the world, right? But see, the devil uh, never does the bidding of God on earth. The devil is not responsible for the curse, And really, Adam isn't either. He is the one through whom the curse comes. Yes, Adam is responsible in that sense. But who does the curse come from? Well, the text goes on to tell us that the same one who subjected it is also going to free it in verse uh, verse 21. It will one day be freed. So what we can understand then, I think, is that the text is saying is that him is God. God is the one that has subjected the earth to futility. This goes back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, God came with a curse. And in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, we see that there is going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the devil, the serpent, meaning those who come through Eve, aka all of humanity, and we can also tie into Jesus, but uh, uh, just just pause for a second with humanity. There's enmity between us and the serpent, and how much more enmity between the seed of the woman, in the sense that that uh, Jesus is the seed of the woman. There's enmity. There is spiritual warfare. Uh, Genesis chapter three, verse sixteen. Eve will have pain in childbearing. That is both reality, amen, those uh, of you ladies who have had children, that is a reality and it is also a metaphor for so much more. There's pain in childbearing. Uh, uh, There is going to be pain. In bringing forth what is good, there is going to be pain. According to uh, the, the curse in verse 16, Eve is going to battle with Adam. Her desires will be contrary to his. There's going to be relational problems with humanity. In verse 17, the ground itself is cursed. As a result, work is going to be hard. Work is going to be hard because the ground is going to have thorns and thistles. And he says, by the sweat of your brow, you are going to work and work and work just in order to eat. And then in verse 19, you will die. How does that sound for career aspirations? You know, so often we're frustrated with our jobs because we actually have what I would call an over-realized eschatology. Which means we believe that heaven is supposed to be now. And we forget that our very work is cursed. And so you're hopping from job to job to job looking for an easier job. I'm just saying it's all cursed, yo. It is all cursed. Thorns and thistles. How many of you have just worked? uh, You've worked on something for hours and hours and hours, and it came to nothing. And you think, what in the world? It's futility. It's the curse. How many of you work for hours and hours and hours, and as soon as you get your paycheck, it goes straight to your bg e bill, and to your food, and just to live, right? And you, then you're thinking, like, what am I doing? I'm just working to survive until I die. That's what humans have been doing for millennia. That's the curse. I'm not saying it doesn't isn't miserable. I'm just saying that is what we deal with. So suffering hits every aspect of our life. You know, here, he's not just thinking of the suffering of like, you know, the, what we would consider to be the people that are really suffering right now. Yes, that as well. But all of life is suffering at some level. Be- why? Because creation doesn't act right. Let me break it down in a couple different ways. We have pointless toil. That's what I just talked about. Pointless toil. We have perverted desires. Uh, Enmity with the devil means we have temptations. We're tempted constantly. We have wrong desires. You know, and some wrong desires, by the way, can be born with. I think we can develop wrong desires As we get older and as we encounter things and as we go through trauma and as we go through different temptations, we can encounter wrongful desires, but to say that we can't be born with wrongful desires is to deny the fact that we are born in sin, meaning we are born with inclinations toward different sinful temptations, and those are all of the temptations we face. Don't tell me Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't born with some kind of sinful desire. Laziness, greed, inordinate desires for bodies that God hasn't given you, inordinate inordinate sexual desires for the same sex. Like all, we, we have desire, we have desire within us That is futility. Meaning, these sinful desires are real desires that you have that cannot be fulfilled emptiness, pain, suffering. Now, some people will come along, some quote unquote Christians will come along and they'll say, hey, you know, God just wants you to satisfy your desires, go do what you want to do, and God is okay with that you know, be who you really are, just follow every fleshly temptation and desire. Listen, those people are, I mean, that's just not Bible. We have desires that are wrong. And so we're not called to gratify those desires, saints. We're called to suffer through the lack of gratifying those desires. Thirdly, we have dying bodies. Our bodies themselves don't cooperate the way they should. Aging, arthritis, knee replacements, sickness, you name it. We are cursed in bodies that are fading away. We have frustrated relationships, enmity between ourselves. Adam and Eve... Immediately, the curse, Eve, your desire is not going to be uh, uh, along with what your husband wants. And by the way, your husband's desire is going to be to rule over you, which is not God's design, but that's part of the curse. There is going to be clashing. Clashing in marriage. That would be the first example there biblically. Some of you might have some marriage issues that you feel like are irreparable. Clashing with friendships. Suffering because... Your friendship is falling apart. Suffering because you've lost loved ones. Maybe you've lost them due to relational problems. You've got loved ones that you haven't spoke with in years that you can't even call because of problems. Suffering as it relates to just broken relationships. As it relates to relationships that are not broken, but people that you love that you just don't see anymore. And there is a deep longing in your soul for union and togetherness, and that cannot be gratified in this world that we live in. We suffer in all of these ways. We're in a world of suffering. Secondly, there's violence. That's futility, emptiness. But there's also violence. So look at verse 21, he says that the the creation itself is in bondage to corruption. Look at verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this is where Eve's childbirth pains are also a metaphor for the greater pains that all of humanity faces. Yes, there is something good coming, but the pains of childbirth here are uh, relating to the time between the fall of Adam and the second coming of Jesus Christ meaning this whole life that we know all of the history of humanity and on is considered here to be this is interesting the in the pains of childbirth now Jewish literature of this day Would use pains of childbirth not not in a reference for like creation's own pains as if the world is has has some kind of conscience and intellect and the earth itself is in pain no the earth is being personified here but what we're talking about with pains of childbirth is actually according to Jewish literature it's actually human suffering and Jesus himself used. Uh, Pains of childbirth to reference human suffering. Jesus said that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, pains of childbirth, and Christians will be handed over to the authorities. Violence. Violence around us and violence committed against us. Revelation chapter 6, which we've been studying on Wednesday nights, puts it this way. He said in Revelation 20, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 6 we're told that in this time period, this era in which we live, there is going to be war, death, disease, and famine. Meaning, saints, this world is a violent place. We've got violence against nations, which we are concerned about. Nuclear war. What happens if this happens? What happens with NATO? What happens... We've got violence in the streets. This is why we have to lock our doors at night. This is why we have to keep our heads on a swivel. This is why we deal with blinking lights, flashing lights on our corners. We've, we've got violence also committed against God's own people, which would be persecution. Sometimes that's physical, sometimes that's spiritual, sometimes that's emotional, but there is persecution. Let's skip down to verse 36 of chapter 8. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all the days long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how the world looks at Christians. Now, we might live in an era where people are more tolerant of us, where people are nicer about Christians, but in their heart of hearts, if they really knew What we stand for as people of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ and all that Christ means, the world hates us. So verse 23, he says, not only creation, but we ourselves groan. We, he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits here is like the image of coming out of the fields and we've got the first fruits of apple pickings. What the first fruits mean is that there's a lot more to come. So we have the Holy Spirit. You know you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been regenerated with the Holy Spirit. But he's saying that's just the first fruits. There's so much more to come. And so even we who have the Spirit grown inwardly, waiting for the adoption of sons. What is our suffering? It's groaning inwardly. Longing for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now let's just pause there and let me say this. Suffering, according to the Bible, is normal. You know, some religious types say, since I'm a Christian, therefore I should not suffer. There are entire movements that are built around this idea that we should not be negative. We should not talk about suffering. We shouldn't talk about anything bad. We should only be positive and talk about success and triumph as Christians. And then what happens? They suffer. And they're blindsided by it. And they get jaded. I thought the Christian life was supposed to feel better than this. I thought the Christian life was supposed to lack suffering, not bring more suffering. What happens is their mom dies. Their friend gets killed on the streets. A child gets sick with some kind of terminal illness. And they say, this doesn't match with my faith. Christians are not supposed to suffer like this. But see then, the other side are, are, I would say, secular types who look at you and say, you see, this is the problem with Christians. It's because there is suffering in the world. There's great suffering in the world. Your mom dies, somebody gets killed, a child gets terminal illness. There is great suffering in the world and you still believe in this God. You see, both of those responses are not biblical. The Bible says suffering is normal and to be expected. You see, church, look at verse 17. Paul doesn't deny that suffering exists. We're going to be heirs of the kingdom We're going to have the the uh, the reality of the adoption of sons. He says, "If children, then heirs; heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we what suffer with Him, in order that we might be glorified with Him." So Paul is saying, suffering is a present reality. So what about this suffering? Here's the next question. If suffering is a present reality, is the end worth it? Is it worth it to cling to my faith and go through all of this and actually have increased suffering as a result of my faith? As you deny your sinful temptations, your inclinations, is the end worth it? As you cling to faith in the uh, middle of relational problems, is the end worth it? Is it worth the wait? Like Thanksgiving morning, Thanksgiving coming up. You know how Thanksgiving is. You got the turkey in the oven. It gets into the afternoon. The turkey is still in the oven. You know, all of the sides are being, uh, uh, being, being prepared. You get all of the smells in the house. And you know it's not going to be another Four hours before you can sit down and eat some food. And you're starving because if you grew up with the kind of mother that I grew up with, all you've had up until this point are crackers and bread with butter on it. Because you can't spoil your Thanksgiving meal. And you're tempted to go to McDonald's. Amen? I mean, forget this whole meal. I'm hungry. The question is this. Why do you not go to McDonald's? The question is this. Is the end worth it? Is this meal worth the wait? And I say, yes. Forget Thanksgiving. The meal that we experience with Jesus in the end of time is going to be worth the wait. So, as Christians, check this out. I'm going to say something that sounds crazy. You might even get offended with me. As Christians... Our current suffering is insignificant. As Christians, our current suffering is insignificant. How? Let me make another statement, and that's the rest of my sermon. I'm just going to try to prove my statement. Because it's not worth comparing with the immeasurable beauty that is to come. And so we patiently endure. Those are actually my three points. It's not worth comparing with the immeasurable beauty that is to come, and so response, so we patiently endure. Can we just break that down for a few minutes? First, it's not worth comparing. Look at verse 18 again. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So often, Christians talk about suffering like this. They'll say something like, man, you know, I know life is hard and I know I'm going through a lot, but compared with what's to come, Paul would say, let me stop you right there. You can't even compare what you're going through now with the glories that are to be revealed. It's not like we have all of the sufferings and the reality of the world on this side of the scale. And then on this side of the scale, we have the future hope of glory with God for all of eternity. And the Christian says, oh, well, look at the two. This side is heavier than this side. I'm going with that reality. Paul says they're not even worth comparing like there's not even a scale out there that would begin to, uh, to, to, to compare the two. If God were to take all of your sad moments in your life and reverse them with joy, imagine how much joy you would have. And then let's say that he takes all of that, all of that joy, and he multiplies it by a thousand. You're still not there it's not even worth comparing. We can't come up with a math equation that, 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 that would do it for us. We're talking about an, an infinite of beauty, an infinite of, of, of joy. And so when I say that suffering is insignificant, that's not to minimize your current suffering. There's a sense in which your suffering is significant right now. And the Bible doesn't deny that either. We're called to weep with those who weep. So we're not Stoics. We're not somebody that's just like, oh, I, 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 you know, I, I don't even feel suffering. I just moved through like a robe. No, we weep with those who weep. Jesus, when he came uh, to Mary and Martha's house, and Lazarus was dead, and Jesus sees the broken hearts of his friends Crying for their brother, what does Jesus do? He cries. He weeps with those who weep. Meaning, our sufferings that we face are significant in this world. And some of you have been facing significant suffering. Some of you have been facing broken relationships, some of you have been facing challenges with your singleness. Some of you have been ch- facing challenges with your married lives. Cancer. Uh, concern for those that you love. Fear of what's going to happen to those that you love. Exhaustion. And what I'm just simply saying is this, is as significant as as these things are, saints, they are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Not worth comparing. Why? It's because we have a measurable beauty that is to come. So Paul explains, secondly here, Paul explains why they're not worth comparing. Look at verses 19 through 23. Verse 19, he says, for, here's the reason, creation waits with eager longing. So creation, one theologian puts it this way, creation is waiting on its tiptoes. Like my cat, when I'm putting uh, food in my cat's bowl and he's trying to get around the bag. Just eager expectation of what is to come. That's how creation is personified here. Creation waits for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. That is to say that our grand revealing as children of God hasn't yet happened. Now we already are his children. We already are adopted into his family. Uh, Chapter 8 verse 16, we saw this last week, last week. The Spirit testifies to my spirit that I am a child of God. Yet, we still look like everyone else. Physically, we still go through the same ailments. We still go through through the same problems. We still go through the same sufferings. You can't just look at a Christian and a non-Christian and 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 without any engagement with the two, know that one's a Christian and one's not a Christian. Our glory has yet to be revealed. Our adoption as sons has yet to be revealed. Is what he's telling us. We still fight fight our flesh. We still get frustrated, we still get sick, we still die, but there is an unveiling that is to come. And it is so beautiful that Paul here moves into the realm of poetry. Where do we go when words fail us? Poetry. Where do we go when there's no way to describe how wonderful something is? Poetry. And so this is why he's saying creation itself is just so excited for what's to come. He's using poetic language to talk about something that is indescribable. Why is creation so excited? Well, verse 20 tells us it's because it's lying in wait of hope. What hope? Look at verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is this indescribable beauty that we're talking about? Well, first, it's a, it's a renewed creation. When our revealing happens and we are seen to be the glorious sons of God that we are, creation itself will be remade. Remade. Now, this isn't a literal burning up of this world and a replacement, but rather this is a refining fire that takes the stuff of creation and transforms it into something beyond what we can even begin to imagine. Revelation 21 continues the poetic language to describe what this new creation is going to be like. If you think of Revelation 21, it says that that this uh, creation is going to be like a city and there's going to be gates that are made out of pearl and there's going to be streets of gold. Now, whether or not there are literally streets of gold in heaven is not the point. The point is this, that the most precious gem that you can think of is just what we make our gates out of in heaven. The most precious metal that you can think of, we just pave our streets with it and walk on it. That's how glorious it is. He's using poetry because it's beyond words. It's indescribable. It's beautiful, saints. Therefore, creation, verse 22, waits on its tiptoes. Look, heaven, when we think of heaven, it's not this airy by and by where we're all floating on clouds and playing harps all day. But heaven is a physically and materially indescribable beauty. Now, it's so much more than that too. It's more than physical and material. Verse 23. He says, We too groan inwardly as we eagerly await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So our adoption is secure, verse 16. We've got the paperwork, but we haven't yet moved into our father's homes. So we're waiting for the unveiling of us as adoption, uh, as adopted sons. But we cannot speak of adoption or adoption as sons without getting to what that actually means. Skip forward to verse 29. We are predestined, according to verse 29, in order to be conformed to the image of the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So so this adoption as son's language directly connects us with the centrality of Jesus Christ so that Jesus has brothers. So that Jesus has family members that He is preeminent among. And, and, And we, His adopted children, are predestined to become like our older brother, to look like Him. You see... The glorification that we speak of then is not really just about how beautiful heaven is. And see, this is the problem so many of us, uh, the, the way that we talk about heaven. We talk about heaven, we wonder what heaven's going to be like, and we hope, hope for heaven, we look forward to it, and all the while we don't think of the Lord Jesus Christ as being present there. Look, heaven without Jesus is actually hell. Hell. There is no heaven without Christ at the center. At the very center of heaven is a lamb who is slain. And the 24 elders fall down in worship of this lamb. And then all of the multitude of heaven falls down in worship of the lamb. Christ is indescribably beautiful. And he is the center point of this hope. Are you with me? So what's our call? What's our call? Our suffering is not worth comparing to the immeasurable beauty that is to come. And so, here's our call. We patiently endure. We patiently endure. Look at verse 24. He says, So now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do you know why peekaboo works for babies? It's because babies have not yet attained the stage of object permanence. Object permanence, according to the psychologists, is knowing that an object still exists even if it's hidden. And so a -a peekaboo works for babies because as you uh, hide your face from a baby, it's as if your whole body is still there and the outline of your head is still there, but your face has literally, it's gone. Like your face no longer exists. And so your baby is cracking up. How did she do this? Her face is literally gone. And then it just comes right back. Look, so many of us have not yet attained the development spiritually of object permanence, meaning we believe that if we can't see something, it doesn't exist. Oh, this is humanity. This is actually materialism as a worldview. You put ism on anything, and it becomes a worldview, Yeah, it's a a worldview centered around that thing. So materialism is a worldview centered around what? The material. Meaning, if something is not material, it doesn't exist. You see, this is the problem with so many folks. Is they say, oh, I could have hope if I saw it. Paul's saying, that's not how hope works. You don't hope in what you see. You hope in what you don't yet see. Well, if I could see it, then I would believe it. Well, you haven't attained object permanence. You believe that if something isn't seen, it doesn't exist. But Paul says this does exist. It is as real as our present day but you don't yet see it. And so we hope. Two handlebars to grab onto if we're riding down this bicycle down, uh, of, of theology down this road, all right? Two handlebars to ride, ride this thing. Number one, your Christian hope is always future-focused. It's always future-focused. Like we've, we've got to recognize that, that our... our, our our hope lies in something that has not yet been seen. Look, look again at the text. He says, uh, verse 24, he says, For in this hope you were saved. This isn't the means of salvation. He's not saying you got saved through having this kind of hope. What he's saying is, is that your salvation is in this hope. It's, it's the location of your salvation. It is kept with God. The kingdom of God is invisible. It is very, very invisible. We can't see it. But it's there. And it's future oriented for us. Our salvation is located in this future hope. Are you with me on this? This is so incredibly important for the way that we think about our lives and our suffering and and the hope that we have in Christ. What is our motivation for holiness? Yes, there are some personal, temporal kickbacks, but it's primarily this future hope. One day, we will see Him face to face. Right now we see through a glass dimly and we help each other out with our spiritual gifts and we tell each other keep having faith in Jesus Christ because one day we will see Him face to face. The second handle is this. Our suffering then that we face magnifies our future hope. It doesn't minimize it. Your suffering serves to get your eyes on the future and to say, my, this world is not all that comfortable for me. But I have a home and I have a place. There's an unveiling that is to take place and that is where my hope lies. Our response, verse 25, he says, for if we hope in what we do not see, what do we do? We wait for it with patience. How many of you would say, I'm really good with patience. Isn't that our struggle? I think our Christian struggle here is is right there in that word. Patience. As a matter of fact, I think most of the times that we make wrong decisions, unwise decisions, and sinful decisions, it's simply because we lack patience with God. And we want heaven now and not later. So, what do we do? We wait for this hope with patience. I like the way that the, uh, the, the Lexington English Bible puts it, very literal translation. He says, for, for if we hope for what we do not see, we await it eagerly with patient endurance. Some might say, Patient endurance. Patient endurance. Endurance. My son hadn't yesterday, he was telling me this story, and I was like, wow, I've got to use that in my sermon. He was telling me this story of this, this uh, inventor, uh, or this uh, scientist, rather, who did this experiment in 1957. And he took a rat and he put the rat into a, uh, a bucket of water and let the rat swim for 15 minutes. And rats, rats are very good swimmers. But after 15 minutes, the rat had drowned. He then tried it again with another rat, put it in, waited about 15 minutes, and right before that rat gave up, uh, Kirk Richard was his name, he pulled the rat out, dried it off, let it rest for a little while, and then he put it back in. And it kept swimming. Guess for how long? This is how my son had told me. He said, do you think it was 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes? An hour? That rat kept swimming for 60 hours. Why? This is what Haddon said. I, and I quote He kept swimming for 60 hours just because they, uh, they kept swimming, there's a number of them. They kept swimming for 60 hours just because they believed someone would save them. Come on, somebody! Look, I know that you are in these waters of suffering. And I know that you can't even touch the ground sometimes. And you feel as if you're going to drown in these waters. And I'm just here to say, patiently endure, saints. Keep on swimming because we have the hope that somebody is going to save us. And when that day comes... Your present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the indescribable beauty that you will see. Therefore, our sufferings today, as significant as they are, are insignificant. Listen, Jesus himself went through these waters of suffering. Christ went through the waters of suffering. He knows these waters more than any of us. Christ knows the waters of loneliness as He alone came to do something that nobody else could do. He knows the the suffering of rejection as He was rejected by His closest friends. As He hung on the cross and as His body became our sin and His Father turned His face away and Jesus cries out, Father! Why have you forsaken me? He knows the pain of physical suffering as He took the the nails in His hands and in His feet and the crown of thorns on His head. But even more than the physical reality is the spiritual and emotional suffering that He bore on that day. But as the preachers say, three days later, He rose from the dead. And He ascended to be with God. And He's coming again. And that day is indescribable. And our, our current sufferings, not even worth comparing to the joy that will be ours on that day. Amen? Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. And rising, He justified freely forever. And one day, He's coming. Oh, glorious day. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of salvation, Jesus Christ. We thank You that Christ is the center point of heaven. God, may we keep our eyes focused on Him. And the hope of that day. God, may we patiently endure with joy, knowing that we are saved and we will be saved. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.